The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Upgrading the Sequential Therapy Toolkit for B-Cell Malignancies, New Evidence on the Individualized Use of BTK Inhibitors in Relapsed Refractory CLL, SLL, and MCL. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash DQM860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good morning. It's great to see so many people here in person. It's quite a novelty to not be talking to a screen and talking to people in the room. It's fantastic. So um, thank you all very much for coming, and thank you to those online who are joining. My name is Toby Eyre. I'm a haematology consultant and honorary senior lecturer at the University of Oxford and, uh, in, in the UK. Um, and I'm delighted to be uh, chairing this event uh, with my friend and colleague, um, Dr. Anthony Mato uh, from Memorial Sloan Kettering. Uh, and we're going to be talking about upgrading the, sequ the sequential therapy toolkit for B-cell uh, malignancies. So just as a way of introduction, I just want to kind of very briefly mention the available covalent BTK inhibitors um, that are approved uh, both in the EU and in the US for CLL and mantle cell lymphoma. As you can see here, um, in, the, in, in, the, in the US, there's very broad, broad approval for uh, ibrutinib and acalabrutinib, as, as so in the, in the EU. Um, in CLL and SLL. Xanabrutinib um, has uh, been approved in the US on the basis of the Sequoia study, and, and, and that randomized study um, has been presented, not published so far, but showed a benefit of Xanabrutinib above bendamustin and rituximab. Uh, for mantle cell lymphoma, uh, the um, approval um, is primarily ibrutinib in, in Europe, and then there's uh, approval in relapsed disease uh, for ibrutinib and the second generation covalent BTK inhibitors, acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib in, in the second line setting. And you can see here there are also non-covalent BTK inhibitors in, in development. Um, Pertibrutinib is un undergoing studies uh, in frontline and relapsed CLL and also in relapsed mantle cell lymphoma, so, so randomized phase three studies, and the, the results of those studies will, uh, will determine uh, the availability and use almost certainly of, of this agent in that setting. Um, and there are other non-covalent BTK inhibitors in, in slightly earlier, earlier studies at, at present. So the, the approval of BTK inhibitors in, in CLL are, are really supported by a number of randomized uh, phase three studies. You can see here a summary of these studies for ibrutinib, acalabrutinib, and xanabrutinib. Uh, ibrutinib, of course, has been around the longest, and there's um, a number of studies supporting its efficacy um, against um, a, a range of intensities of immunochemotherapy, primarily in the frontline setting. So um, intensities such as uh, chlorambucil and then in, in younger, fitter patients, FCR. And, and there's benefit um, really across the board in terms of progression-free survival. Um, and of course, the Resonate study uh, demonstrated a large PFS advantage uh, over ofatunumab and led to approval in the relapsed setting. Acalabrutinib has been shown to be superior to, um, to again, immunochemotherapy, so, so abinutuzumab chlorambucil in the, in the frontline setting, both as monotherapy and in combination with, with abinutuzumab. And then in the relapse setting, we'll see updated data actually of both of these studies um, in poster form at this meeting. Um, there's, there's continued superiority for acalabrutinib monotherapy um, over investigator's choice, bendamustin rituximab or idololacib um, rituximab. And then I mentioned the Sequoia study uh, showing superiority ahead of bendamustin rituximab for xanabrutinib. So if you look at the kind of current guidelines um, uh, across, um, across Europe and, and the US, you can see 
uh, in CLL when patients require treatment, re really regardless of whether they're fit or unfit or their mutational profile, you can see that BTK inhibitors really play a prominent role in the, in the frontline setting uh, in these disorders. So you can see uh, ibrutinib or acalabrutinib is, is, is recommended um, in the frontline setting for a lot of these, um, a lot of these situations, along with um, venetoclax-based uh, therapy. In mantle cell lymphoma, again, um, use of BTK inhibitors primarily sits in the second-line treatment setting at present. So the NCCN guidelines and the ESMO guidelines really recommend second-line use of the available covalent BTK inhibitors uh, in this space. So BTK inhibitors really form a, a fundamental and, and key part of the management of CLL and mantle cell lymphoma. But what are, what are the barriers to BTK inhibitor efficacy? Why do we sometimes run into issues with these agents? So this is um, pooled data from, from Jennifer Work published a few years ago, really demonstrating that disease progression and adverse events, so other events for stopping uh, ibrutinib, are the key drivers of, of uh, ibrutinib discontinuation. This is pooled analysis over four clinical trials. Um, Dr. Wyack also did a, a large analysis looking at reasons for uh, ibrutinib-acquired resistance, and you can see here that the BTK mutations really form a very dominant uh, part of uh, the reasons for resistance here. So BTK inhibitors, so BTK um, mutations are seen in in the majority, so uh, alone or in combination with uh, PLC gamma two mutations in in in, uh, in the kind of combined majority of patients. And of course, the, the reasons for discontinuation do vary across the, the time points at which a BTK inhibitor is used. So if you, if you look at the pooled data across, all, across three large ibrutinib studies, you can see this was published in Blood Advances now three years ago. Um, pooled data across the studies demonstrate that discontinuation rates uh, are nearly 40% in, in these clinical trials and progression and adverse events are the, are the main reasons for discontinuation. And really, the, the, the timing of the usage of a, of, of a BTK inhibitor determines whether progression or adverse events are the dominant factor. So you can see here, this is data from the Resonate 2 study. So frontline ibrutinib use, there was 53% discontinuation overall, but actually adverse events were the dominant reason for discontinuation in this study. Um, so, so different compared to, for example, relapsed refractory mantle or heavily pretreated CLL, where, where progression is more, more likely to dominate. What happens if you run through your main kind of standard of care options now? And by that, I, I mean a BTK, covalent BTK inhibitor and a BCL2 inhibitor. Well, this is effectively new defining a, a, a new unmet need in, in CLL, um, the so-called kind of double novel, novel agent refractory group. And this is, this is data from the US that Anthony presented at, at ASH last year. Look, look out for a couple, of, a, a couple of posters at this meeting that myself and Anthony are presenting as well, uh, looking at this space. Um, you can see here that the median discontinuation-free survival in this patient group, so, so time to discontinuation of a subsequent therapy or death, was only five months. So I think this really represents a, a, a new unmet need and a clear focus for the CLL treating community to, to look at. Mantle cell lymphoma, really a, a, a pretty similar and sobering story after covalent BTK inhibitors also. So this is actually historical data to some degree, but um, data demonstrating that actually in quite heavily pretreated patients uh, progressing through a covalent BTK inhibitor, their survival is, is very short from, from a large global analysis and one from the US. So uh, there's clear, clear, clearly an unmet need in, in this space. 
With that, I'll conclude the introduction. I'll hand over to Anthony next. Um, I will just I'll just run through the agenda here today. So Anthony's going to talk about um, BTK use in relapsed, uh, focusing primarily on relapsed refractory CLL. I'm then going to speak about sequential uses of BTK inhibitors in relapsed refractory mantle. Then we'll have some time for cases and then a Q&A. So without further ado, I'll hand over to um, my co-chair, Anthony Moto. Okay, what a pleasure to be here. Um, thanks so much for attending our lecture, and today I'm going to focus on building a modern toolkit for, with BTK inhibitors specifically for patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia. This is the latest on the use of BTK inhibitors in sequencing in CLL. It's really an exciting topic, uh, and as you heard from Toby's excellent overview, there are two overarching themes that we would think about when we're um, thinking about selection of a BTK inhibitor. Number one, does the drug overcome resistance in any way? Uh, and we'll focus on the, the evolving literature for known mechanisms of resistance. And then does it address the issues of intolerance that have largely been associated with the use of ibrutinib? Okay, so a few years ago, we would have had nothing to say for this section, but there is an evolving literature really helping us to understand the mechanisms of resistance. And as you can see from this slide, the most common reason a patient discontinues a covalent BTK inhibitor like ibrutinib is the development of a cis 481 mutation. These mutations render uh, the drug ineffective. In addition, you can see downstream activating mutations at PLC gamma 2. There are other rare resistance mutations also listed on the slide that can emerge. And this is not a problem that's isolated to just ibrutinib. But what you can see from this slide is that these mutations, specifically the cis 481 mutation, can occur in the setting of other uh, covalent BTK inhibitor usage, such as acalabrutinib or zanubrutinib. And so in summary, BTK inhibitor resistance contributes to disease progression in all of the covalent BTK inhibitors. So if you're resistant to ibrutinib, you're resistant to acalabrutinib, you're resistant to zanubrutinib. So here are the practical implications of resistance for treatment decisions. So number one, the evidence suggests that many CLL patients will progress on ibrutinib exhibit these mutations, and it's estimated that this occurs between 50 and 70% of patients. So when I see a patient in the clinic, they're progressing, I check uh, next-gen sequencing, most of the time I will find these mutations. But for clinical decisions, mutational testing in this setting is not absolutely necessary. So for example, there's probably no real data to support that you have to assess for the mechanism of resistance when making a decision what comes next for managing a patient with CLL. However, this testing can provide additional information that can complement treatment planning. And we'll go more into that. So what are the strategies we can use to address BTK inhibitor resistance? And this will be a relatively short part of the presentation because there's not a lot of data to support many agents. And in fact, the only approved agents that we have available for treating this particular situation is venetoclax. I'll show you the data in a later part of the presentation, but it's efficacious, but it can be complicated in terms of its administration and it may not be appropriate for all patients. It's really exciting to share data for the non-covalent BTK inhibitors. And I'll talk about pirtobrutinib and nemtobrutinib and how these drugs can overcome the resistance mechanisms that I've already presented. I'll demonstrate efficacy and safety information as well. Let's talk about some other available classes of therapy to think about. The PI3K inhibitors, for example, have limited benefit uh, in this population and also significant toxicity burden. So PI3K inhibitors don't work in this particular situation. Um, they're toxic and also they're not, they've never really been tested in this situation. Chemotherapy, same thing. We don't have a lot of information about chemotherapy sequencing after a, a covalent BTK inhibitor, for example. And again, just to overemphasize this point, if you're resistant to ibrutinib, the more selective covalent BTK inhibitors do not work. 
So don't think about switching from ibrutinib to acala or to zandibrutinib. Here I'll highlight the data for venetoclax. This is the Murano trial. Everyone knows it. It's been presented many times. The randomized um, trial of VEN-R, which is a time-limited approach versus bendamustine rituximab. You can see the excellent uh, progression-free survival median of 53.6 months and overall survival of 82.1% at 60 months. So this combination works. What's not listed on the slide is that there is really no data for time-limited venetoclax-based therapy following a covalent BTK inhibitor. So we sort of extrapolate this data from the, vent, from the Murano trial to covalent BTK inhibitor-treated patients. There is a trial looking at venetoclax monotherapy as a continuous therapy in a heavily pretreated patient population, all of whom received a covalent BTK inhibitor, mostly all ibrutinib used. You see 91 patients listed there. Median number of prior therapies is four. Half the patients had a deletion 17P. The most important thing to emphasize is that the overall response rate to Ven mono here is excellent at 61%. And the median progression-free survival is approximately 24 months, so the responses can be durable. Whether it truly is 24 months or 53 months as compared to the Murano data remains unknown because we don't have data for time-limited tested in this particular patient population. Well, what about the non-covalent BTK inhibitors? This is a slide summarizing initially the preclinical data, but later I'll talk about the clinical data. There were three drugs in development in this space, nemtabrutinib or RQ531, pirtabrutinib, formerly Loxo305, or vecabrutinib. All of the clinical data I'll talk about today is for nemtabrutinib and pirtabrutinib. These drugs are preclinically and clinically active in patients who have a CIS481 mutation. And you can see there that there are differences between these drugs and the covalent inhibitors, and that's largely the mechanism of action. They're reversible, forming a non-covalent bond, they bond at a different site on BTK, largely responsible for the reason why these drugs are effective in patients who are resistant to the covalent inhibitors. This is a nice uh, cartoon demonstrating ibrutinib, where it binds, and why CIS481 needs to be intact in order for this drug to covalently bind. And then on the right, you see pirtabrutinib has a different binding mode. It does not require CIS481 uh, binding, so this drug uh, should be able to overcome that resistance mutation. Three years ago, we really had no clinical data. 2022, we have a wealth of data on this particular molecule. I'll present an oral presentation at this meeting discussing pirtabrutinib specifically in CLL. Here are data that I presented at the most recent ASH meeting looking at this molecule specifically in 252 patients, all of whom had discontinued a prior covalent BTK inhibitor, largely ibrutinib, with the most common reason for discontinuation being progression of disease, so these clinically resistant patients. You can see here the overall response rate was 68%. And from the waterfall plot, you can see nearly every patient had a marked reduction in lymphadenopathy, regardless for the reason of discontinuation of the prior covalent BTK inhibitor. And then those red hash marks at the bottom also indicate prior venetoclax exposure, so the double refractory patient population. And just to hit the point home a little bit further, the BTK cis481 mutation status is not predictive of pirtabrutinib benefit. So this PFS data are patients who progressed on a covalent BTK inhibitor, so they're all progressors stratified by the presence or absence of a cis481 mutation. You can see those curves are overlapping, which largely supports the fact that when you're thinking about the use of a covalent BTK inhibitor, it's not absolutely necessary to document the presence of a cis481 mutation. And then here we have subgroup analyses, which can be quite helpful from this Bruin trial. And the one that's highlighted on this slide is the BTK plus BCL2 population. This is the double exposed or double refractory patient population. 
the patients who I, and I'm sure Toby would argue, have no standard of care options available to them, here you can see the overall response rate was maintained for this patient population, and I can assure you the responses are durable. Now I'll switch to nemtabrutinib, another non-covalent BTK inhibitor, which has demonstrated activity in patients with relapse refractory CLL in patients with BTK cis481 mutations. These data were updated by Jennifer Woyak at the most recent ASH meeting. Smaller number of patients receiving the 65 milligram dose, only 38. However, you can see the overall response rate was approximately 58%. Uh, and the other thing I'll highlight is that we do want to also look at the toxicity profile associated with these agents. I won't have more information on that later, but the discontinuation rate here due to adverse events is approximately 8%. Um, and then again, just emphasizing the response rate was 58%. Of course, I, I talked about the data for the resistance mutations associated with the covalent inhibitors. There is an emerging literature now to try to understand mechanisms of resistance to the non-covalent BTK inhibitors. This is data published out of the laboratory of Omar Abdel Waheb at MSKCC, where we did look at the few progressors that we had on pirtobrutinib and try to understand the mechanisms of resistance. You can see we identified five um, new acquired mutations in BTK at the time of disease progression. So these are different than CIS481 and are likely associated with the binding of pirtobrutinib clustering around the tyrosine kinase catalytic domain of BTK. And that's all I'll say about that for now. Now we'll talk about intolerance. You heard this from Toby earlier, that the most common reason for discontinuation of a drug like ibrutinib, and to a lesser extent, the other covalent BTK inhibitors, is intolerance, AFib, arthralgia, bleeding, hypertension, infection. Those are sort of the lists that I think of in my mind when I think about the most common reasons why a patient would come off of a drug like ibrutinib. How do we overcome that? And the question to ask yourself, are the, are the second generation inhibitors, are the non-covalent inhibitors any better in terms of adverse events that would make it more, um, would make it better for patients to be on those agents rather than the first in class ibrutinib. So you can see here um, the covalent or re reversible or, um, sorry, the irreversible and reversible inhibitors, Acala, ibrutinib, uh, and zanubrutinib listed on top, and then Arcule or Nemta and Pirto listed on the bottom. They have different kinome maps, which can be associated with different specificity for BTK, but also differences in off-target effects is what we should be emphasizing here. And those differences might lead to some um, subtle or not so subtle differences in adverse events that we care about for our patients. So the less selective BTK inhibitors have more off-target effects, which may contribute to more toxicity associated with these agents. And so you'll see this theme over and over again, whether or not we're more uh, selective for BTK and whether or not that translates into a difference. I don't really focus a lot on the kinome maps at this point in time. That's, again, preclinical data, less relevant when we have now head-to-head -head data that we can think about for patients. And here you can see two trials presented now approximately a year ago, looking at head-to-head -head comparison between ibrutinib versus acalabrutinib in the relapse refractory setting. That's the Elevate RR study, which is a, is a, a trial that was selective for patients with poor risk features, either a deletion 17P or a deletion 11Q. And while the drugs were shown to be similar in terms of progression-free survival from, with a non-inferiority design, the thing that we really pay attention to the most are the adverse events. AFib for ACALA was 9.4%, 16% for ibrutinib. These were statistically significantly different from one another. I always look at reasons for discontinuation. I think that's probably more helpful. The AFib led to zero discontinuations for ACALA, but seven discontinuations for ibrutinib. 
And then zanubrutinib was compared to ibrutinib in the Alpine trial, totally different study design. ORR was the primary endpoint. I'm not going to talk about efficacy at all today. But what I would like to mention is that, again, you see a difference in cardiovascular toxicity. AFib or flutter was 2.5%, was 10.1% for ibrutinib, and these were statistically significantly different from one another. There's also subtle differences in other cardiovascular events, and I would urge you to pay attention to these two trials and take a, take a look at those. Uh, I also want to highlight sequencing data for going from a from ibrutinib to a second-generation covalent BTK inhibitor. This is data presented by Kerry Rogers, where she went from ibrutinib to acalabrutinib. And the trial design was such. If a patient was on ibrutinib, they had an adverse event, they stopped the drug, we waited for progression. When they progressed, they switched to acalabrutinib. The overall response rate was 73%. 8% CRs or CRI. The responses were durable. The median was not reached. But what I'm highlighting on this trial is really the window into the differences in the adverse events associated with these drugs. You can see for the five events that are listed here, there were 41 patients who had a discontinuation of ibrutinib. You have to wonder, would these same events occur on acalabrutinib? Well, they did. They occurred 24 times as compared to 41, but 18 of the 24 were at a lower grade. Six of the 24 were at the same grade. Only one was at a higher grade. So even in a patient population, all of whom discontinued ibrutinib due to an intolerance event, you can see that these events are occurring less frequently. And the one that is the big standout for me is AFib. 16 patient discontinuations due to AFib on ibrutinib only reoccurred twice on ancalabrutinib, and both were at a lower grade. Well, what about the non-covalent BTK inhibitors? I already mentioned a little bit about the AEs associated with nemtabrutinib, but what about pirtabrutinib? We know the drug is active, but what about the discontinuation rate due to adverse events? And can get, that give us some window into whether or not this drug is better tolerated than the covalent BTK inhibitors? The discontinuation rate for this drug due to AE was only 1%. But specifically looking at the intolerant population, just like I mentioned earlier, there's also evidence that this drug is quite active. The initial report had an overall response rate of 52%. Subsequently, this uh, data has been, update, has been updated to now have an overall response rate of 75% in the ibrutinib or acalabrutinib intolerant patient population. And then here again is the window into the cardiovascular adverse events associated with pirtobrutinib. The two things that I'll highlight are AFib or flutter, only 2%, very low. Hypertension, quite low at 7%. And then you can see the listing of other BTK inhibitor-associated adverse events. So the take-home points for my section of this presentation are that intolerance is the most common reason for discontinuation of a covalent BTK inhibitor. Testing for molecular resistance to a covalent BTK inhibitor is not indicated in clinical practice at this time. You can do it, it's interesting, I do it, but it's not needed for clinical decision making. Following progression on a covalent BTK inhibitor, venetoclax remains a standard of care. However, there are data emerging for the non-covalent inhibitors that are quite promising, although none of these are yet approved. And patients who are double refractory, those patients who are no longer able to benefit from a covalent BTK inhibitor or venetoclax, represent the largest unmet need in CLL. And you'll see from many of our presentations and studies designed in the future, pay attention to this patient population. If a drug works here, it probably has a future in the field. And I'll stop there. Thank you very much and pass it back to Toby, who's going to discuss the same issues in mantle cell lymphoma. Excellent presentation, and, and a lot of the themes will be, will be followed here as well, looking at uh, sequencing of therapy um, with BTK inhibitors in mantle cell lymphoma. 
Um, so uh, much like uh, much like CLL, um, the first generation covalent BTK inhibitor of brucinib and, and acalabrucinib, xanabrucinib, the second generation covalent BTK inhibitors have been studied in pivotal trials in relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma. Um, these uh, are summarized here on this slide. What you can see, um, what you can see here is that the abrucinib treated population is slightly higher risk in terms of the number of prior lines of therapy. Um, you can see response rates across the, the board between 70 and 80%, broadly speaking. Uh, the CR rates between the, the, the three studies here are, are quite difficult to compare because um, PET-CT scanning was used in, in, in the second generation BTK inhibitor studies, uh, unlike um, the, initial, the initial study with ibrutinib. You can see here low rates of discontinuation due to adverse events, as mentioned in mantle cell lymphoma. The context here is very different to, for example, frontline uh, BTK use in CLL. And the progression-free survival here varies between about 14 months, and actually the updated data I'll show you in a minute is up to 30, uh, 33 months with Xanabrucinib. But of course, it's very hard to kind of uh, overly cross-compare uh, against these, these studies, and certainly the efficacy uh, is, is there with each of these drugs. Now, Ibrutinib is approved in, in, in Europe, and each of these three agencies approved it in the US. Um, and the majority of use now is, uh, is second-line therapy. And it's primarily because of this pooled analysis of uh, Ibrutinib-treated patients within clinical trials. So um, 370 patients across uh, a number of studies have been, been looked at um, with Ibrutinib monotherapy to see if um, patients particularly benefit um, from, from the agent at different lines of therapy. And you can see here that if you use Ibrutinib at first relapse, you can expect a median progression-free survival of just over two years compared to under a year if you use it subsequently. And uh, although there are some caveats to this analysis, you can see that there's potentially a survival benefit um, if you use the drug um, earlier, but of course you're not really comparing exactly the same kind of populations here uh, in, in a more heavily pretreated setting. But nonetheless, this has really led to um, usage of um, BTK inhibitors at first relapse in mantle cell lymphoma primarily. Here's the acalabrucinib data from the, uh, the ACE-LY004 trial. So the median progression-free survival in this study was uh, nearly 20 months with an overall response rate of 81% and a CR rate of 40%. And again, this has led to, um, this led to approval and, and use in, in the US primarily. This is recently updated data of Xanabrucinib, again in pre-treated patients. So this is data primarily from China. Uh, response rate, uh, 84%. Median progression-free survival, intriguingly, um, nearly three years. So uh, interesting that this does, does seem to look um, like a slightly longer progression-free survival than, than, than the other BTK inhibitors. But, but whether that's a reproducible finding is d difficult to be certain. And I think, I think it, it certainly is another option for... For, for relapsed mantle cell lymphoma and um, is, again, approved in the US for use. If you uh, look at data, what happens to patients if they stop a prior covalent BTK inhibitor in mantle cell lymphoma? So this is data from the UK. So in the, in, in the UK, um, NICE have approved the use of ibrutinib at first relapse only. So if, you, if, if we have a population of, large population of patients who are all receiving ibrutinib at first relapse, and this is data looking at how patients do if they um, progress through a COVID, well, through a brucinib. 
And what you can see here, and this is, this is, a, this is a population of over 200 patients. If you, if you have no further systemic therapy, now, of course, this will be due to either you know, rapid disease progression or, or, or frailty and, uh, and comorbidities, these patients have a very poor survival. Um, if patients are fit enough uh, for subsequent therapy, um, then, then they do do a bit better. Um, this, this primarily, though, is in the pre-CAR T-cell era, and, and RBAC was the kind of one of the main, more intensive therapies that were used, and, and certainly showed that people did a little bit better. But I think if you, if you take the population still, still overall, the survival, is, the survival is very limited, so the overall median, uh, overall survival in this population was, was, was one and a half months. So clearly demonstrating a need for development of new therapies in this space. Now, unlike CLL, where the, where the mechanisms of resistance um, in, in a post-covalent post BTK inhibitor are pretty clear and the story is much cleaner, actually in mantle cell lymphoma, uh, the resistance mechanisms are much more varied. And um, for the purposes of time, I don't have a, a lot of time to go through all of this, but just to say that the that the, the mutations that are commonly seen in CLL are much more uncommon in, in mantle cell lymphoma, so they represent really the minority of, uh, minority of cases. Um, and and this, still rep this represents an ongoing area of investigation, um, and uh, again, we'll, we'll need looking at as BTK inhibitors move uh, further up the treatment pathway. I mentioned CAR T-cell therapy. Uh, Brexacaptogene autolucil is the uh, licensed and approved um, therapy in relapsed mantle cell lymphoma based on the Zuma 2 trial. I, I summarized the study here in this slide. You can see here that, that, that in this study, all patients that had a prior BTK inhibitor, they were uh, pre-treated with prior CD20 antibody, prior chemotherapy. Um, so a, a representative population in, in that sense. And you, you can see here that response rates were over 90% with two thirds of patients achieving a complete response. And actually, this data has just been updated in, in, the, in the JCO, and, and very encouragingly, the patients who achieve a complete remission have very durable uh, responses, including those with high-risk disease. So, um, so that's certainly uh, intriguing uh, data from that study. One of the major issues with, with this study, as well as uh, the broader deliverability of CAR T-cell therapies, uh, is the toxicity of this agent. You can see here, I've, we've listed the grade three or more uh, toxicities and, and uh, cytokine release syndrome, grade three or more is 15%. Most patients get grade one or two, at least, um, cytokine release, release syndrome. Um, and I think notable, really, the, the neurological events, over 30%, grade three or more, um, cytopenias and infections are also an issue. So um, whilst this therapy is clearly highly effective, it requires um, uh, spe specialist care and uh, an understanding of the adverse effects, and, and also, also management uh, from a patient progressing through a BTK inhibitor and actually getting them to be AFRIs, the cells manufactured and delivered, is also, is also a challenge. Um, and so there are considerations when you're, when you're thinking in your clinic about who might be CAR T-cell fit and eligible. As I mentioned, the, the, the duration response, progression-free survival, um, and overall survival is, is robust. This is the, the presented data uh, from, from ASH last year, um, but this has been, as, as I mentioned, updated, and there's a, there's a poster at this meeting um, uh, also demonstrating this data. 
So Anthony's introduced perturbrutinib very nicely, so I'm not going to go over kind of a lot of the, the background of, of perturbrutinib, just to, to, to really say that the, the Bruin study is, has investigated the agent in a number of B-cell malignancies, so CLL's the, the dominant population in the study, um, but also there's a large number of patients with mantle cell lymphoma. Um, this is data, again, from, from ASH last year, and there's a poster at this meeting also um, discussing this data further. 100 patients have been previously exposed to a prior BTK inhibitor in the study, and the response rates are just over 50%, um, with CR rates of 25%. In the dark blue, as, as, as demonstrated here, are, are patients who stopped the prior BTK inhibitor due to progression, which represents the majority of patients in mantle cell lymphoma. And you can see here uh, clear efficacy in this, in this patient population. Um, and uh, if you do respond to, to perturbrutinib, but at the moment the, the responses are, are durable. So you see about half of people responding, and those that do respond, the, the median duration of response at the present um, is about 18 months. Um, relatively short follow-up, and so we do need to see this data mature, but nonetheless this is very encouraging that there are, there are uh, patients who, who derive durable benefit from, from perturbrutinib in this setting. That there are patients who stop because of discontinuation. So here in the light blue, you can see patients stopping for discontinuation due to toxicity. And th these patients also have um, clear efficacy here uh, with, with responses seen uh, in this population. So again, this is a, a potentially a useful agent um, in patients stopping a covalent BTK inhibitor because of toxicity. And Anthony's already gone over this, so just to briefly re-mention the toxicity profile. So um, really minimal toxicity in the way of cardiovascular events, some minor bruising, and some reversible and manageable neutropenia, but uh, across the board. So this is the, the pooled, pooled um, data across over 600 patients, so a range of histologies here. But this is generally a pretty heavily pretreated patient population. Um, uh, and so this is certainly certainly encouraging early data. But the follow-up is relatively short, so we need to see this this mature as well. Um, but nonetheless, this is um, this is impressive data. What about other agents in terms of sequencing of therapy? So Anthony's already mentioned um, mentioned the data with acalabrutinib. There's also um, a, a, a small series of, of xanabrutinib-treated patients in, in those with B-cell malignancies who are intolerant or, uh, or who are intolerant to, to either abrutinib or acalabrutinib. Um, these are the, the AEs listed, so these aren't numbers of patients. These are the total AEs and to see whether they recurred, and you can see the majority didn't recur on xanabrutinib, um, particularly, particularly um, with, with the abrutinib-treated uh, patients, um, or if recurrence occurred, it was generally at lower severity. So this is certainly encouraging data to suggest that xanabrutinib also is effective in those, that, those patients who are intolerant to abrutinib. But this, is, this, this population is really dominated by CLL patients, so actually very few mantle cell lymphoma patients in this, in this cohort. What about if you stop a covalent BTK inhibitor for, for intolerance and you want to switch therapy? There's, there's some data supporting lenalidomide-based therapy. Um, there's, a, there's a pooled analysis of, of, of pre-treated patients with ibrutinib, but these patients stop because of efficacy, lack of efficacy or toxicity. The response rates are uh, about 30%, but these responses aren't particularly durable. So although, although lenalidomide represents an option, there are, there are potentially other, other BTK inhibitors that may be available. And then just to highlight an ongoing clinical trial, this is, again, there's a, there's a poster at, at this meeting, and, and there was one at ASH, so do, do take a look at this. This is, this is uh, testing um, perturbrutinib against investigators' choice BTK inhibitor. 
Um, so, so depending on what's available um, in the in the centres of the investigators, ibrutinib, acalabrutinib, or zanabrutinib can be can be chosen. Patients are stratified um, by the simplified MIPI score, the BTK inhibitor that's being used, and the number of prior lines of therapy. Um, and and this is in a covalent BTK inhibitor naive patient population. So recruiting at the moment, and this is a superiority uh, design study. And then just finally, really to to, to just briefly mention that this study, uh, as mentioned, the Bruin trial actually is looking at pertubrutinib in a number of other different histologies. And so there's, there's, there's efficacy activity in, in, in other diseases, particularly Wardenstrom's and Richard transformation. There's now a, a, a really quite a large cohort of patients being treated with this. So it'd be interesting to see follow-up data here. So the take-home messages really from this talk are that covalent BTK inhibitors are firmly established in relapsed mantle cell lymphoma with the the, the data primarily supporting their role as, as first relapse therapy. And although you do see uh, long remissions occurring, particularly in those who achieve a CR at first, first relapse, um, continuing patterns of resistance are, are apparent. If you look at the literature that exists after BTK inhibitor therapy, the outcomes are, are generally very poor. Um, but CAR T-cell therapy certainly is now a, a new standard of care option here and, and, and certainly does change the natural history of the disease in this space. Non-covalent BTK inhibitors, particularly pertubrutinib here that I've shown you, is, is certainly promising and may also add to the, uh, the treatment options in the future. Okay, great. So what I'm going to do here, we've got a CLL case and then a mantle cell lymphoma case. So I'm going to, I'm going to present this case and then ask Anthony's uh, views, views, on, views on this case. So um, this is a 70-year-old lady who, has treatment naive, who had treatment-naive uh, CLL. She had relatively few comorbidities, so well-controlled hypertension is the main one. So a pretty fit lady in her early 70s and has unmutated immunoglobulin gene CLL, no TP53 mutation seen on, on NGS. And these are her blood counts. You can see here that she's anemic, thrombocytopenic, has a white count of 200. Um, she's got an enlarged spleen, but is pretty fit um, and has a reasonable creatinine clearance. So she's treated with acalabrutinib front lines. This is obviously based on the Elevate Treatment Naive uh, study where acalabrutinib received frontline license. She, she, she responds. She then progresses after three years. So I suppose my, my questions to Anthony here firstly is, um, is you, you alluded to in your talk that you, you do test for it. Um, so so, so, um, so, so how, how, how frequently do you test for, for um, BTK mutations in these kind of patients, and what do you do with the information? So at our center, we have next-gen sequencing available for um, testing in the setting of resistance. I, I tend to test it out of curiosity. I'm just trying to learn sort of what the resistance patterns look like. Although, you know, based on current approvals, whether a mutation is present or absent, Standard of care for me for this patient will be venetoclax. Um, but 50 to 70% of mutations are, um, 50 per 70% of patients are um, progressing in the setting of a CIS481 mutation. That's not 100%. And so I do think there is something to learn about other mechanisms of resistance. And so we do test. In, in the, for the Pirto data that I presented, we would have not learned anything about mechanisms of resistance if we didn't test and learn. So kind of in that period where I think we're still gathering information. So we've obviously discussed about the, the, the prevalence of resistance at, uh, in terms of the resistance mutations. Um, and as Anthony has mentioned, this is a kind of sort of learning tool. It doesn't maybe 
um, necessarily uh, change decision making at present, but it, but it may be complementary for future treatment planning. So you mentioned um, venetoclax. Any, any other treatment options you consider in this particular setting? With approved, with approved agents, I think venetoclax is really the only option for a patient like this. I think the PI3K inhibitors, at least in the real world data you and I have published many times over, they don't work well. The, re, the PFS is like four to six months, so that's probably not an answer. Uh, and we know from many clinical trials that the discontinuation rates are high due to adverse events, so I don't think that's the standard of care. Um, I'm most excited about sequencing patients to non-covalent BTK inhibitors. Uh, we've enrolled, I think, between the two of us, so many patients on the Bruin trial, I kind of feel like it's a, a standard of care option in my practice, but of course it is, and it's not approved. So we're using it in the context of clinical research, but we don't have it available um, should we want to prescribe it. So I would say non-covalents are, are emerging as an as a important class here, but venetoclax, I think, would be the standard of care. And, and see, what do you tell your patients about what to expect from fixed duration VEN-R in this setting after a covalent BTK inhibitor? Do you, are you, do you feel comfortable extrapolating the Murano data to this kind of setting? Do you, do you tell them anything different? It's a good question. I don't feel fully comfortable extrapolating that data. So the Murano trial had a median of one prior therapy. So many patients who get venetoclax in the relapse refractory setting are more heavily pretreated. That's one, although not this particular patient. I don't know the exact percentage, but it's like approximately 1% of patients on Murano had seen a prior covalent BTK inhibitor. So they're essentially an all chemo population. And while I, the PFS for then after ibrutinib was 24 months and Murano was 53 months, the data that I presented for then after ibrutinib was also in a more heavily pretreated population. The median number of prior therapies was four. So I don't think I can, you know, very accurately say what the median PFS is. And for anyone who's doing a clinical trial with VEN-R as a control in a modern population, I mean, it's, it's tr quite difficult to try to estimate what the median PFS would be as a control. So I think there is some uncertainty there. It probably doesn't perform as well. Sure. Okay, so I mean, I think we, we, we obviously kind of didn't, didn't talk specifically about this, but I think it would be, be, be fair to, to state that there are no other covalent BTK inhibitor options that are appropriate if you're resistant to a covalent BTK inhibitor. And Anthony's been through these options, so venetoclax plus or minus a CD20 antibody, um, certainly if you're giving us fixed duration with, with a CD20 antibody, so with rituximab, non-covalent BTK inhibitor trial, or, or a PI3 kinase inhibitor, although, as mentioned, uh, pretty limited evidence for that. Okay, so this patient um, uh, receives rituximab and, and venetoclax um, according to the, the Murano regime and progresses two years after the end of therapy. So they responded, they had a two-year remission, so off therapy for two years. Um, what are your treatment options here? What would you go for? Would you re-challenge with venetoclax? Would you use uh, another agent? What are your thoughts? First thought is this lady has bad luck because uh, the ACALA didn't work as well as it should have and the venetoclax didn't work as well as it should have. So this um, person is in trouble. Um, I, if I had access to Pirto, I would do so at this time point, potentially as a bridge um, to other therapies. You know, if she's really in good shape, she could be a candidate for CAR-T study in the future or aloe transplant. Um, if I didn't have access to pyridobrutinib, I would rechallenge with venetoclax. We have data that we'll publish soon together on um, venetoclax retreatment. 
in this situation and it's active and you can see durable remissions a second time around. So that's something that you could think about. So my preference would be a non-covalent BTK inhibitor here, um, which can induce very durable remissions with or without a cellular therapy, if not venetoclax. Yeah. And any experience or data that you know of with immunochemotherapy, if you've got a dual exposed patient patient like this. Have you seen any data, any experience? We, we had a series, again, that we, we published a lot together, so uh, it's probably fitting that we're doing this presentation together, um, that we looked at VEN-treated patients, most of whom had also seen covalent BTK inhibitors, and there was a small number of patients who had chemoimmunotherapy, but they didn't look very good. The median PFS was under six months. So I think once you've become resistant to venetoclax and maybe either even BTKIs, there's probably not a tremendous role for chemo, even if you're chemotherapy naive. Great, thanks. And, and this is really just to highlight again that this, the, the patient falls really into this patient population. Of course, a lot of these patients in, in this specific setting actually have had prior immunochemotherapy before, but none, nonetheless, um, you can see here the, 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 the kind of new unmet need in this setting. Okay, and just to, just to really hi highlight what Anthony said, so current treatment options are, are pretty limited. You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't want to necessarily re-expose to a, to a covalent BTK inhibitor. Um, I'd actually sort of change that statement that venetoclax is unlikely to be effective. I, I don't think that's necessarily fully correct if, if they've had um, prior prior venetoclax rituximab and responded, I think it's a very reasonable option here. But certainly looking, looking at clinical trials and looking for non-covalent BTK inhibitors looks reasonable. And, and as Anthony mentioned, PI3 kinase inhibitors are, have pretty limited efficacy um, and substantial toxicity here. Um, and just, just to highlight that there are ongoing studies looking specifically at venetoclax retreatment. So this is an example. There's a, an example from the, GLA, the German CLL study group as well. But this is the Revenge or Revenge study, which I rather like the, the name of. Um, this is looking at retreatment re of venetoclax plus abinutuzumab in patients who've received it at first line. And interestingly here, um, slightly different therapy lengths um, based on how long your remission to frontline venetoclax is. And of course, there's an open question as to, as to how valuable retreatment with venetoclax is according to the duration of your prior response. Um, so this would be an important and interesting study, and Matt Davids is leaving, leading on this study. Um, so um, this is case two, Max, an older patient receiving uh, chemoimmunotherapy followed by a covalent BTK inhibitor. He initially presented with mantle cell at the age of 73, no major comorbidities, key 67 was 50%, good performance status, initial symptoms included weight loss, fatigue, and splenomegaly. So in terms of the treatment history, he received RCHOP, uh, he was not interested to consolidate the response with an autotransplant. Again, um, he experienced weight loss, abdominal pain at three years following RCHOP, which is fairly typical, I would think. Um, PET scan shows um, disease in the chest and abdomen. So he initiates single-agent ibrutinib at a dose of 560 milligrams daily. However, progression of disease was noted one year on therapy with ibrutinib. He's now 77. Performance status is a little bit worse than it was before, one to two. So Toby, how would you characterize this patient and decide on next steps? Uh, is he relapsing with an aggressive or resistant disease? Do you think he's a candidate for CAR T now? And then what are the other options that would be considered? Did I do okay presenting mental stuff? <laughs> I haven't done that in a while. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this, this, I suppose this represents a, a fairly typical case, something that we, we tend to see. Um, mantle cell lymphoma patients are, are generally older, often have comorbidities. And so this is not atypical. 
Um, in terms of your, the question about is, is this patient relapsing with aggressive or resistant disease, well, I think his kind of clinical pathway demonstrates that he, he has difficult to treat mantle cell lymphoma. Certainly, if you look at some of the higher-risk patient characteristics in terms of things like Key67, blastoid disease, TP53, they often have a limited response to ibrutinib. So uh, progressing after a year on ibrutinib is relatively short at first relapse. Um, is he a candidate for CAR T cell therapy? I, I mean, I think that is the key question here. Um, and he is, uh, what I would say, very borderline, 77 uh, borderline performance status. I think, I think the, the currently approved CAR T product that we have would be a real challenge for him. I wouldn't necessarily wholly exclude it. It would slightly depend on his, uh, on the availability, uh, social support, what he wants to do, et cetera, et cetera, all of those other factors which are clearly very key in terms of decision making. Um, but I, I, he's, he's certainly not a kind of home run in terms of CAR T cell therapy, I don't think. Um, and so other, other therapies available, I, I, difficult. I mean, he had a response to prior chemotherapy. You could go to a kind of attenuated bendamustin rituximab regime, but I wouldn't be particularly optimistic about the length of response. Certainly look for clinical, clinical studies as well here. Could I add one more question to this? So if he, he has a high key 67 for mantle cell, if he had had some other poor risk feature like a DEL17P, could you go off label and just say, would you consider BTK inhibitor as a frontline for this patient? Uh, yeah, that's a very interesting question. Um, I, I don't think we have um, kind of very clear data that uh, patients derive that much more benefit from P53 deleted mantle in the frontline setting. Obviously, we've just had the SHINE um, study published and presented. Um, there is a, a relatively small, small cohort, but a cohort of patients with, um, with uh, deletion 17P and TP53 mutations particularly do look like they do a little bit better with ibrutinib plus bendamustin rituximab, but it's uh, but, but, um, relatively small numbers, difficult to make too, too much of that. Um, at the moment, of course, it's not approved, and so we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But it, it may be a group that people, people move towards um, novel, novel agents or potentially CAR T cell therapy in the, in the frontline setting in clinical trials. So the other thing I wanted you to add here was um, potentially discussing how PIRTO might fit into your sequencing algorithm. And I guess in a world where this patient has a CAR T product sitting on the shelf waiting for them and the PIRTO brutinib available, how would you make the decision and would you automatically sequence to the car? Yeah. Um, be nice if the CAR T cell product was sitting on the shelf. <laughs> <laughs> actually, one of the issues here is, is, is actually when people progress through ibrutinib in this kind of setting, the disease is often pretty explosive and, and actually time from you know, apheresis to CAR T cell delivery, et cetera, is really relevant and important. Um, yeah, if PERTO was, was available, I suppose in the kind of CAR T cell unfit patient population or those who are potentially quite borderline for CAR T cell therapy, Pertabrutinib certainly, you know, represents potentially a, you know, a, an effective and, and safe option. Certainly, certainly something I'd, I'd discuss with patients if it were available. Absolutely. All right. So um, let's now talk about this patient. So um, responds to the ibrutinib, but experiences toxicity. So this is now the ibrutinib intolerant mantle cell population, which is probably the second most common reason for discontinuing ibrutinib mm. here. Right? It's more progression of disease develops AFib, hypertension, leading to discontinuation despite dose holds and adjustments, so you did everything you could. Now would you discuss next steps um, here for um, covalent versus non-covalent in this particular situation? How would you decide uh, which agent would you use and why? And does the cardiovascular specific AE really factor into your decision making? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, I think I think to kind of answer this question, you you would be um, you it would be very dependent on what you had available. So, of course, I mentioned that the approval of the different BTK inhibitors does does vary across across countries, and so. So in, US, in the US, there's a fairly broad approval, but out in, in, in the EU at the moment, um, you, can't, you can't access the second-generation BTK inhibitors. I, I'd also say that the data on sort of sequencing with intolerance um, is primarily in CLL patients. So I think you'd be at least extrapolating that data, probably reasonably. Um, I think I'd want to know how long the patient had been on the abrutinib for and just to check there were no signs of progression. I'm, and I'm assuming from this case it'd been on the abrutinib relatively short short period of time, so you'd expect covalent BTK inhibition sort of sensitivity. Uh, I think that's obviously a key thing here. So depending on all of those factors, yes, I would go for acalabrutinib, xanabrutinib were available. Um, xanabrutinib has particularly low atrial fibrillation rates, and so if the AFib was a real, real issue, that would be potentially a very nice option. Um, if if not available, then non-covalent BTK inhibitor in, in a clinical trial, and if none were available, um, again, we're back to the same scenario, potential CAR T-cell therapy. And, and just one other question then, since you brought up that lenalidomide data, do you think if you didn't have the not, let's say the AE were particularly risky, mm -hmm. major bleed or something like that, sure, sure. would you then consider LEN to be the standard here or what would you yeah, do? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it represents an option uh, alongside, you know, treatment like Bendamustin, rituximab, attenuated doses or something. I, I think the, the lenalidomide data in this particular patient population um, is uh, not particularly effective. Okay. Um, and so um, one other thing I wanted to add here was because they, it was mentioned in the case that everything was done appropriate, like in terms of dose holds and adjustments. Agnostic of mantle cell or CLL, can you just kind of add your thoughts about that strategy and is it particularly effective for any particular AE? Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose that's a kind of quite a large topic in itself, managing toxicities on ibrutinib. But um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think one of the issues with AF, of course, is that, that, that often patients then require anticoagulation and that, that kind of potentially increases the risk of bruising, bleeding. They need additional medication to, to manage it. I think we've gained, you know, gained a lot of experience of, uh, of managing patients with hypertension and, and AF on ibrutinib. Um, most people can actually be managed on it, but there are occasional patients that sort of decompensate when they get atrial fibrillation. I think that would be the thing that would really, would really kind of sort of make my mind up for me in terms of switching. Um, or if they had very difficult to control anti, you know, hypertension, you know, needing two, three agents at high doses, that kind of thing. Um, because because it's, it's, it's clear that the rates of AF and hypertension are different with ibrutinib to, to the second generation BTK. And then I guess one other point to make from this case, we started at age 73, we're now 77. Can you just speak a little bit to the AEs associated with CAR-T um, for any patient, but particularly an older patient, and, and how you're thinking about those AEs when deciding for um, oral therapy versus a cellular therapy? Yeah, so... Um, I suppose the kind of the, the key initial toxicities with with CAR T cell therapy are, are of course cytokine release syndrome and and, and neurological toxicity. So kind of uh, ICANs. Um, the, the 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 rates of grade three, as I mentioned, the rates of grade three or worse ICANs are uh, are over um, thirty percent. If you look across the kind of CAR T cell literature, the rates of that particular A are probably more common in older patients as well. 
Um, but, but not only those two, two issues, actually beyond that time point, there are issues with cytopenias and um, hypogammaglobulinemia infection. They're all considerations. But also, I think in, in, in older patients, that the kind of social setup and the, the, the requirement perhaps to, to travel away from their local center to have this therapy also is a, is a major con consideration for, for some people. And so all of these things really kind of come into the decision making. And then just to add to the mix, I didn't ask you about venetoclax, but I know there is uh, not an approval for that, but there is literature that looks promising. So, so how, how would you use that here? Yeah, so, so uh, as, you, as you mentioned, the venetoclax isn't approved in this setting. Uh, there's, there's some efficacy. So we published a, a really quite a high-risk UK series where venetoclax was available on compassionate use. The response rates were about 50 60%, but they weren't, they weren't durable, so the medium progression-free survival in that study was... was um, was, was about three months. There's some, some data from the MD Anderson, again, demonstrating efficacy, slightly longer progression-free survival. It, it has efficacy. Of course, it's being studied in combination with uh, ibrutinib. The Simpatico study has completed enrollment, hasn't, hasn't read out yet. And so that might, that, that might be where venetoclax um, is potentially used in a licensed setting. But it, in terms of the kind of post-BTK setting, it, it's off-label. It is used a bit. You still need to be careful about tumulysis syndrome and so forth. All those, all those um, aspects are still important. Um, but, but, but the data demonstrates relatively limited efficacy. Okay, great. So thank you very much for your attention. That concludes the kind of main, main sections of this meeting. Um, we've got some time for some audience uh, questions. Uh, if, if we have someone, I think we've also got some questions online. So I'm going to move over and sit next to Anthony, and we're going to, we're going to look at some of the online questions. But do come to the microphone, state, state your name and, and where, you, where you're from, and we'll, we'll answer your questions. So thank you for your attention. So how are you going to treat those patients that started um, you know, their PDK journey with non-PDK patients? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So, so, so I suppose the first part of that, that question, obviously, within, within the clinical trial, the majority of, there were different, different arms in the clinical study, and there was an arm for BTK, there was kind of, almost a, kind of like a basket arm where you could, you could treat mantle cell lymphoma if they were BTK naive. Um, the, as you say, the vast majority of people have had a covalent BTK inhibitor. Um, the, the randomized trial will sort of di dictate whether, kind of the second answer to your question in terms of whether, whether, non whether PERTO will be used ahead of covalent BTK inhibitors. Um, in relapsed mantle cell lymphoma. And, you know, it's a, the, the, the control arm in that study is very relevant, and so it's asking a, 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 an important question. Um, in, in, terms of, in terms of sort of sequencing therapy the other way around, I think it's a very open question, to be honest, at the moment, a, across all B-cell histologies, not just mantle cell lymphoma. And we'll, we'll have that question really be asked uh, no doubt many times of, of CLL patients who are, who are receiving pertubrucinib who then develop progression and, you know, do covalent BTK inhibitors work there. I think there'll be a lot of work that will need to be done looking at resistance mutations uh, and analysis in covalent BTK inhibitor naive patient populations as we move forward. There are studies, of course, of, of, of pertubrucinib in combination who will be covalent BTK inhibitor naive, so it'll be really important to look at kind of the longitudinal data there to see, uh, to see A, what, whether their responses to covalent BTK inhibitors and, and B, what the resistance mechanisms are to pertubrutinib in covalent BTK naive patients. Because uh, Anthony's data from the New England Journal this year is, is, is excellent and really helpful, but it's not in a covalent BTK naive patient population, and that will be in another important group. 
that's CLL, mantle cell lymphoma, I think, would be even potentially more complex than that because of the, the, the resistance, uh, resistance mechanisms uh, to, to BTK inhibitors there. But it's an important question, one we need to understand. Okay, um, oh, we've got another question, and then we'll go to some online questions. Okay. My name is Samir. I'm from Brazil. I wanted to ask you about uh, the lenalidomide. When you mentioned about venetoclax in the relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma, how do you compare if we don't have access, we have uh, very few clinical trials open in Brazil when we don't have CAR-T? And uh, is, is there a, a, a pattern of patients in mantle cell lymphoma with relapsed refractory, like blastoid forms, that may be more sensitive to lenalidomide or venetoclax in this scenario? Yeah, that's a good question. So, so the, the data that exists in the post-covalent BTK space is kind of sort of, it's, it's, it's a pooled analysis of some trial patients, some real-world patients. Um, the response rate is 29%, and the median duration of response in that cohort, I think, is about 20 months. So I think that's kind of what you can expect from lenalidomide. My, my sense is that the more proliferative your disease, the more difficult lenalidomide is to, yeah. to, to deliver in terms of getting, getting con control of, of mantle cell lymphoma. But, but I, I mean, that, that's pretty much true of most, most, most situations. Bad, bad patients, bad, bad disease biology kind of is, is difficult wherever you use agents. So yeah, um, I think in some of the kind of more, more indolent settings, it can be it can be useful. Obviously, there's some very nice data in the frontline setting of, of R squared with R squared. But I, I, I'm not too. I would not be too optimistic about how patients would do using LEN post BTK. Would you re-expose the patient to bendamustine? I think there's very little data in. in well, I suppose the case had prior R chart, but if you've got somebody with frontline who's had frontline bendamustin, um, and then your post-BTK. I think if they're fit enough to have bendamustin again, I'd really be thinking about CAR-T cell therapy if it's available. If it's not available, I think I'd probably go on the sort of duration of your prior immunochemotherapy response, but I'd still be tempted probably to, to, to switch and use, for example, a, a, an anthracycline-based therapy or something if chemotherapy were your kind of own, only option in that setting. Okay, we've got, got another question from the audience. Hello, good morning. I'm Martin Kina. Thanks for the lecture. Uh, we know that peer-to-peer -peer routine has responses after uh, adult refractory CLO patients um, and mantle cell lymphoma patients uh, who have received CAR T cells. So the risk is um, it's going to be. After the covenant in BTK inhibitors, refractory approval, that shouldn't we leave, shouldn't we leave it after VR uh, refractory patients or CAR T cell refractory patients? Uh, so for mantle cell lymphoma? I could ask if most of the settings I think are another bad. I prefer to even in CLL patients uh, since in RTP we can't get CAR T cells. Yeah, Anthony, do you want to answer that? So I guess, the, so you're asking, should peer-to-brutinib be saved for last? Is that basically the question? Yeah, I don't think so. Um, to begin with, in CLL, um, there's data now to suggest that the drug works quite well in patients, whether or not they've seen venetoclax. But I'm still of the mindset to try to stay within a pathway. So like the extreme example might be some patient who 
got ibrutinib, was intolerant, went to acalabrutinib, was resistant, went to pirtabrutinib, had a durable remission, but then progressed. There's data that we presented at the ASH meeting last year, uh, Megan Thompson, uh, a fellow at MSK, to suggest that venetoclax remains active in that situation, and we'll expand that data hopefully this year. So I think from a sequencing perspective, you don't, at least with the real world data, and I wish I could quote a, quote a clinical trial, but they're just not being conducted in this situation, that venetoclax would work here. Um, whether or not you should go to CAR-T prior to pirtobrutinib, I think it's harder in CLL to answer. First of all, we don't have an approval, um, and it's always the balance of whether or not the CAR should be moved up earlier where the T cells are likely effective still or, or to, be, to be safe for later. So I think that's completely unknown. I, I go with ease, honestly. It's easy to start uh, an oral therapy uh, for the most part. Mm. Oh, okay. So I'm assuming, yeah. <laughs> so, well, the, the, the Bruin trial, you know, like most clinical trials, doesn't have sequencing data upon progression events, but we are collecting data together on progression events and looking at next therapies, and we, we do have data on a small number of VEN-treated patients, which the number will expand in size, to suggest that you can sequence then after Pirto, and it's still active. In, in terms of your question about CAR T-cell therapy or PERTO in mantle, I mean, I think it's very dependent on the clinical context and the, the fitness of your patient and availability of CAR-T. I think, you know, clearly the case I presented, uh, you know, there's a kind of nuanced discussion you need to have with the patient about uh, an available pretty non-toxic oral agent with response rates of 50% versus... Uh, more toxic, more involved therapy that may involve travel, et cetera, et cetera, with responses of 90%. And um, I think if someone's fit for CAR-T cell therapy at the moment, CAR-T represents uh, the standard of care option. And, you know, certainly the, the, the updated data that's being presented is very, or being presented is, is very encouraging for those, those who obtain a CR. So, um, that would be the discussion I'd have with the patient. Of course, as patients get older and more frail, obviously the kind of oral non-toxic option becomes that much more attractive. Um, uh, and the fact that it's non-toxic as well in terms of you know, cytopenias, infections, et cetera, also lends itself potentially to post-CAR T space, which is actually a difficult space to, to, to deliver therapy in as well. So I, you know, I, th I think that's where we may see kind of use in the future uh, pending approval. Okay, well, if there aren't any more questions from the audience at the moment, do, do, do come up to the microphone if you, if you do have any. We've got a couple of questions. We've got a few questions online. So th there's a question here just to kind of um, add to my point about CAR T-cell responses correlating to key 67. And, and if you look in the recent, J, J, and, and, and do, I suppose the question really is, do you see, do you see responses there? The answer is yes. There's, there's some uh, data from Zuma, Zuma 2, but also data from... Uh, particularly the, the US, um, US kind of CAR-T consortium demonstrating that, that actually uh, certainly initial responses are pr pretty independent of, of high-risk features in, in mantle cell lymphoma, which is certainly encouraging. Um, and as I mentioned, actually, that the, the longer follow-up, the kind of three-year follow-up of the Zuma 2 study demonstrates that, that the higher-risk patients do actually, if they achieve a CR, do, do have durable responses. Um, yeah, Anthony, do you want to answer? So there's a question here on, uh, is there any early data of time-limited combination therapy um, with non-covalent uh, BTK inhibitors and venetoclax? 
Yeah, so the Bruin trial did have two exploratory arms that were added to it. One was looking at the combination of Pirto plus Ven, and one was looking at the combination of Pirto plus Ven R, uh, both of which were presented, at least the early data, at the AACR meeting by Lindsay Roker, which looked to be quite promising uh, in terms of the adverse event profile and also the activity seen so far, very high overall response rate. That has led to the randomized trial, which is a um, phase three trial looking at VEN-R plus or minus pirtobrutinib in a very relevant population. It's a relapse refractory study, 80% of whom had seen a prior covalent BTKI, which is very different from the patient population who participated in Murano with the opportunity to change the standard of care for a triplet versus a doublet. So that's, I think, probably the most advanced study right now. There is a phase one trial looking at the, I think it's LOXO338, I'm forgetting the number, the yeah, BCL2 yeah. inhibitor in combination uh, with Pirtobrutinib, which is just getting underway. Um, so sort of different BCL2 inhibitor in combination with Pirto, but absolutely no data on that available at this time. Thanks. Okay. Okay, we'll do one, one final question. So um, there's a question here um, about uh, how you manage TP53 mutated mantle cell lymphoma patients and is it brutinib plus venetoclax a treatment option? Um, so it's, a, it's obviously a highly active combination. We, we've seen that from, from uh, the AIM study, so that a, a, a publication from the, the Melbourne group um, demonstrating really high responses. Actually, within that subgroup, there are some patients with p53 mutated disease that do have uh, very that do obtain complete remissions and responses look durable um, there are a number of studies don't have time to go into all of them but actually you know analyzing this combination with or without cd20 antibody in the frontline setting and there'll be p53 mutated patients no doubt within within that population and of course there's been the simpatico study which um, we're awaiting the results of so i think all of those uh, newer studies will will give us a better idea about what we can expect with um, bcl2 btk combinations in the future um, but i think if you had the combination available um, and you could use it despite it's despite the fact that it's not 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 approved at the moment um yeah it's a it's an attractive option within clinical trials and so forth and thank you again for your attention and thank you for joining us today. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash DQM860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly.